Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, uh, Senior Director at Global Council. Welcome to this Global Council podcast. Um, what we thought we'd tackle today uh, is, um, in some ways, uh, esoteric and in some ways incredibly practical. But what we wanted to look at was the question of the way in which the rule of law question in the European Union has collided in a very important way in current events in Poland. And what we want to do is to pick apart the, the two rule of law questions that seem to be seem to us to be in play here. And that's the question of the rule of law as it operates in Poland, and in particular with respect, of course, to the Polish government's treatment of its media and its judiciary, but also the way in which this question of the rule of law in Poland has been drawn into a wider debate about not so much perhaps the rule of law in the EU, but the relationship between national law and European law in the European Union, and the question of the political sustainability of the argument for the primacy of European law in the EU. Now, to help me pick apart these threads, um, I'm joined today by two GC colleagues, Anniko Zierbeck, who is a senior advisor in our, uh, our Central European team, and Denzel Davidson, who is uh, an advisor at GC, a former advisor to the British Prime Minister on questions European. And both of them, uh, through their expertise in Polish politics and Polish law, and through the operation of the European Union, have got an interesting perspective on this question. Now, Denzel, perhaps before I pass over to you to talk about the rule of law question uh, in Poland, maybe I can try out with you a sort of a, a, a theory here. And that theory concerns the, the, the question of the primacy of European law and how it's managed to get sucked into this argument in and about Poland. Because it, it, it seems to me that one of the things we're gonna to need to do here is to try and disentangle two quite different uh, arguments about the law and how the law works in Europe and in the European Union. And the, 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 one of the things that the Polish debate over the rule of law has done, chiefly, of course, through the medium of the Polish Constitutional Court's finding that aspects of the European treaties are incompatible with certain aspects of the Polish Constitution, which, of course, in some ways echoes similar findings by the German Constitutional Court, is to raise this question, in some ways to, to, to take the, the Polish rule of law argument and to add to it the additional complication of a set of claims about the relationship between national and European law. And of course, this isn't, this isn't really a new argument. The, the question of the primacy of European law, the, the capacity of uh, European citizens to appeal directly to European law and the capacity of European law to supersede, chiefly, of course, the law created by the treaties and their jurisprudence uh, to supersede national law. This, of course, this is an argument that goes back decades. Uh, it goes back to the 1960s, to uh, to the Van Gendon Luce case. It runs through the 70s, through important judgments like Cassie de Dijon, 
And in each of those cases, what we've seen happen in the European Union broadly is um, the, uh, the, 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 the European Court of Justice discovering in the European treaties, finding in the European treaties, in some ways, a necessary primacy of European law over national law, if the aspirations of the treaties to create a functioning single market or ensure a level playing field um, uh, across the, uh, the European Union or ensure that uh, all European citizens are able to avail themselves of the freedoms potentially embedded in the treaties, that these things create a kind of necessary primacy uh, of European law over national law. And at each stage of this kind of jurisprudential journey, although European member states have often argued in these cases that uh, they don't believe that that was the intent of the original treaties, and they don't believe that in these cases, European law should have primacy over national law, often for simple reasons of, of sovereignty, um, they have acquiesced at each point in this journey. And one of the things that's enabled over the last 40 years or so, 50 years now, has been the building up, chiefly through the activity of the, uh, the decisions of the European Court of Justice, of a very, very powerful European jurisprudence, um, essentially asserting both the, the ability of European citizens to appeal directly to European law and the primacy of European law uh, over national law. Now, it's an interesting question, of course, why member states have acquiesced at each stage in that process. But one reason why it might have been, of course, is that often these were cases in which the judgments had relatively limited immediate political implications. They were often about the functioning of the single market or things like mutual recognition in the single market. But of course, what's happened in the last decade is that we've had a series of extremely important uh, uh, decisions um, at the European level, which have cast this question of the relationship between European law and national law in a totally different light. And they are, to my mind, the big questions of essentially redistribution embedded in some of the European Union's responses to the financial crisis. And now, of course, the question of whether the rule of law or the practice of Polish politics is compatible with the European Union's uh, aspirations to ensure a general political culture of the rule of law. And when, we've, when that question of the relationship between EU law and national law has been, has been applied to these highly combustible political issues, the question of redistribution of money within the European Union through rescue funds or any other kind of mechanism, bank guarantees, and of course the question of whether essentially the Polish government is sovereign in terms of the way it manages its judiciary and its media. These of course are an order of magnitude more political in many ways than some of those original cases in which the primacy of EU law was asserted. And that seems to me to be how we've arrived at a point where the question of the rule of law in Poland and the question of the rule of European law in the EU can collide together. And it seems to be to be quite a combustible mix. So with having said that by way of introduction, what's your take on where we find ourselves? Well, I think I broadly agree with you, Steve. As you say, it, it has worked for members, accepting the primacy of EU law has worked member states. It's made the EU work. And given that member states don't always trust each other, although they might not trust each other in government terms, they do trust each other legally. But what's happened is that 
the the European institutions have, in their day-to-day -day business, someone had to take the place of of of, of uh, more formal power uh, power decisions, because the expansion of the EU's powers through treaty change has been stuck since the Lisbon Treaty in 2008, and new problems have come needed European solutions, but which they dare not use a treaty tool to try to solve. And so they pushed the, the treaties to uh, as far as they can go, and that has then bumped up against some constitutional courts, most importantly and particularly the German constitutional uh, court, who've said yes, but, and they've said yes, but, because every member state approaches this problem of the relationship between their national law and EU law in its own way, in its own constitutional tradition. And a lot of them have said, yes, EU law has primacy, but ultimately we decide who decides, what's called the competence competence question. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, of course a, a German term. And the German constitutional court said, well, ultimately we drive our authority from the basic law. So ultimately we decide who decides. And we are flagging here that there's a problem, but the constitutional court looks at German politics thinks a bit about the wider consequences of its actions. So it's always thus far allowed a process way out. So where we have been is that we are able to keep the, these tensions between certain member states, national constitutions, the, the supremacy of their national constitutions and the primacy of EU law, it's a theoretical issue. And what is new about the Polish case is that there is no obvious process way out, it keeps it a theoretical question. It's a very, very practical question. And then the second thing is that there is a new problem in trust in the independence of the member states judiciary, that their rule of law actually works. This is a new problem for the EU. And the, the EU has been very good at turning countries, joining it into liberal democracies, but it now faces the new, the new problem, of how do you keep members as liberal uh, democracies once they're in? Right. So, and Nico, as, as Denzel said, that the, the, the challenge here seems to be essentially whether it's going to be possible to keep this broader question of the relationship between EU law and Polish law at the theoretical level, where member states have generally preferred to try and keep these kinds of questions up till now. But before we, before we address, and of course, some of the implications of failing to keep it at the theoretical level, uh, one of the implications of failing to keep it at the theoretical level is that it raises the question potentially of whether in fact we are uh, approaching a point at which the polls will have to make a more fundamental judgment about whether um, the Polish constitution is compatible with EU membership. Now, my, my sense is that the Polish government have no real appetite to go there, even if the constitutional court have opened that particular door, but what's your take here on how the Polish government are trying to handle these, these two arguments about law, their prerogatives, and the relationship to their, between their prerogatives and the EU? Uh, thank you, Stephen. I would use the first few minutes to kind of um, refer back to the fact that this rule of law issue has been a part of the discussions between um, Brussels and Warsaw since the Law of Justice Party came to power in 2015. They had a very strong uh, reform agenda, how they would like to change um, 
the, the, the legal system and, and, and a few uh, larger systems um, operating in, in Poland, amongst them the justice uh, system as well. And even though their power is now a um, little bit, th th there are um, options, a safety valve, let's, let's put it that way, because the, the Senate is now ruled by the opposition parties and basically the president can um, has an own power base. They are still very much uh, stubbornly going on this way um, of of of, uh, of 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 um, pushing through their their, their ideas. Um, and there's been infringement procedures launched by the Commission with regard to the judicial reform, and they even launched an Article Seven procedure that is basically uh, could lead to uh, Poland losing some of the the, the voting rights. Uh, but uh, but the Commission itself has been under pressure lately from member states and the European Parliament to move ahead with uh, with with, uh, with asking Poland or, or 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 pushing Poland to 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 come back to this general idea how rule of law should operate in one of the member states. Um, it uh, the Commission of course uh, maintains that it has its right how to approach the the issue whether. It's about the, the approval of the National Recovery Plan of Poland or in, in any other ways. So they are still considering that, but it's definitely been on the agenda for some time. What the Polish government is doing is basically trying to dodge the compliance with, uh, with, with the request of the Commission and, and also uh, European Court of Justice rulings by elevating it to from this policy level to a political level. And they are looking for allies in that. Their argument is basically, as you, Stephen, referred to aspirations or, or, or what creates a necessity of the primacy of the EU law and the sovereignty question by basically saying that this is a political question, basically how we see the future of the EU, whether it is based on strong nation states, how they like to refer to themselves versus uh, a federalist EU. And this is the biggest question. Um, alliances are difficult to form in that sense. They can rely on Hungary, of course, but actually an election is coming up next year. So let's see whether they are going to have this long-term partner staying there. But, uh, but on the other hand, we could already see it at the October European Council meeting that even if other countries are reluctant to uh, team up with Poland in this issue, uh, the Polish can rely on some sympathy from other member states, be it for very practical reasons that they need Polish cooperation on some larger dossiers on the agenda of the EU, for example, 50 or 55, uh, or they would like to cooperate in the industrial strategy on uh, battery plants. So there, there might be other reasons as well, but definitely at the political level, the, the Polish government's arguments have some traction. So definitely, uh, I would say that, um, this is one of the strategies of the Polish government, keeping it at a political level. And on the technical level, it is basically just uh, not deciding yet um, um, about the, the straightforward uh, which system has primacy. Uh, basically, de-escalation is the, 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 the way forward. Right. So essentially, essentially trying to keep the question of the primacy of EU law over the Polish constitution at arm's length, it doesn't seem to be a particularly fruitful, while it's obviously an attractive stick to wave at some point, it's, it's not, a, not a road the Polish government particularly wants to go down. Now, Denzel, 
Annika has described a strategy there of essentially trying to elevate this problem to the political level, to rely on alliance building in the council, both to head off Article 7 action, but also but also to, to box the commission in, in terms of any in, in terms of, of of any measures on its part with respect to things like the budget. Uh, you're an old Brussels hand. Is it going to work? Well, I think what, as it sometimes happens, what looks like happening is that the commission is going to be asked to sort the problem out. So member states, as Annika set up, have their reasons for preserving good bilateral relations with Poland. And why should they want to dirty their hands and make enemies when they have the commission to do that for them? Uh, so uh, the, the commission uh, has, has used it uh, in British proceedings against Poland, had uh, judgments in its favor. It's now waiting for um, clarification of its powers from the European Court of Justice. And then it has to make a further decision what it's going to do about the big tool it has, which is EU funding. And I think some member states would be quite happy if they could stand back and say, well, we're very sorry about this, uh, but this is in the Commission's hands. Uh, and watch the Commission then exert pressure from what almost all members, all member states do see as a real problem, some more so than others, some politically acutely. Uh, the Commission is also under uh, great pressure from the European Parliament. Now, in a way, that great pressure doesn't amount to very much because the, there isn't very much the European Parliament can do in practice. It can try leveraging other dossiers, but these other dossiers are usually dear to some MEPs' uh, parts, but it, it makes for a bad noise in, in the Brussels bubble. Uh, the European Parliament is going to try a court case. Um, the legal omens look very poor for the European Parliament and that to force the Commission to to uh, uh, act more harshly, but uh, the, the likely route is is, uh, is the Commission to start exerting its financial leverage, which is potentially a very powerful tool because the Polish and the Hungarian economies benefit enormously from EU funding. And we have the very large recovery fund uh, and Poland's and Hung Poland and Hungary are the only countries whose recovery fund plans have yet to be signed off. And this is something that uh, the Polish government have been almost literally banking on. They've built their uh, plan uh, for uh, Poland, the next stage of the Polish economy on it. I'm sure Annika can talk more about But uh, unless the Commission agrees to it, it ain't going to happen. And Annika, just to Denzel's point there, to, to what extent is this Polish government in really invested in the need for a new tranche of EU funding? And to what extent do you think this gives meaningful leverage to Brussels? This is basically the only leverage the, the Commission has, basically the planning stages for the National Recovery Plan and also the, the operational programs, because let's not forget it that the new uh, stage for the multi-annual financial framework, as the EU budget is called, is just the starting in 2021, it runs until 2027, and all these operational programs are being developed now. It is, of course, a negotiation process, so both sides are giving in something, but basically the approval of these programs, the approval of the National Recovery Plan is the point when the Commission can basically force or enforce some of these issues. Of course, uh, there is this extra um, conditionality, rule of law conditionality that Denzel has referred to, and that is still yet to say because it seems like more of a kind of infringement procedure with like notification sense and being very legal in that sense uh, that we still need to say how it develops, the commission is still working on that, but definitely now it is the financial tools. So 
that's that's the only leverage the the commission might have and presumably i mean as you say we we still we, we don't know yet how the uh, how, how the how the um, how the contingency mechanisms attached to the uh, to the MFF and the rescue plan work, but what we can say is that they're presumably extremely important to some EU member states, such as the Netherlands. And Denzel, presumably, this means that while there'll be some member states interested in or at least tempted to stand with Poland on what's perceived to be sort of a basic sovereignty issue, there are going to be other member states who really would want to see meaningful contingency exercised at this point on this tranche of money, particularly as it's seen by many as being, of course, the first step towards possible future redistribution mechanisms in the EU. Absolutely. So this creates two sets of incentives. It creates uh, incentives to the, the countries who don't really like spending money through a recovery fund anyway, aren't big fans of uh, of a transfer union, even on a, as, on a temporary one-off basis, as the recovery fund is, so, is supposed to be, such as Scandinavian countries, such as the Dutch. Uh, and if they're going to have to do it, they certainly want to make sure that the systems that disperse uh, those monies are sound, that they're not corrupt, they're not subject to political influence. So they really want a tough time for those reasons, and they're acutely aware of public opinion backbone. And then there are those other countries who in the long term don't want this to be a temporary one-off. They want. They think that the only way the Eurozone could succeed is to become something of a transfer. And they know that if the first time we have something big like a recovery fund, it then it, the money is then doled out to, to countries who uh, cannot guarantee that the money is being spent properly because their courts have been politicized, then there is very little to no hope of these countries like the Scandies, like the Dutch, maybe the Irish too, ever agreeing to that again. And they will fear that uh, that, that attitude will be contagious and will affect countries like Germany and Austria as well. So in a way, what we're seeing is a debate not just about uh, the rule of law issue, existential though that is to the EU, but also about the EU's future. It's about yeah. how much EU member states can trust each other. At least in principle, it sounds like there's both an incentive for some member states to push hard on contingency, uh, which is going to be uncomfortable for Warsaw, but also if, you know, as Aniko says, at least some incentive for Warsaw to try and find an elegant way of de-escalating so that this doesn't go any further. Okay, so an extended exit or extended exit question. First to you, Aniko, there's there's been some very loose talk following the Polish Constitutional Court judgment that this means that there's now a material chance, albeit small, a material chance of Polexit, of Poland being forced by the logic of its own Constitutional Court's position to essentially leave the EU. Now, I'm going to assume that you don't buy that, but probability one to 100%. So basically, the the, the voters of uh, the Law and Justice Party, and, and let's not forget that, that they still uh, poll at almost the same level as they did at the last election. They, they only lost a few percentage. Maybe, of course, issues like the, the, the migration crisis at, at, at the Belarusian border 
uh, adds to the, the, the resurging popularity, so to say. But, but definitely the voters of the Law and Justice Party are very much supportive of the government taking this very strong stance um, against Brussels. So, so that's, 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 that's what they, we have to count um, of. But the, the large majority of, of the Polish population is actually supportive of EU membership. They, they see a value in that, absolutely, just being part of the alliance. So basically the Law and Justice Party going for this side, and yes, uh, in the coalition partners, there are some expressions of this, but, but definitely uh, they cannot allow um, this argument um, of the opposition parties' alliances to be formulated that the current government is um, acting on um, a Pol exit, a Polish exit from the EU. So that's, that's, that's there. it's very, very unlikely. And the government also has to look at its investors because even though this rule of law issue has been around for some time, uh, foreign investors still do like to invest in Poland. Uh, there's been some recent announcement. Google is uh, bringing their researchers, uh, the PricewaterhouseCooper um, bringing in further investment. So, so we, we see uh, nuclear stations now. Now, uh, three countries are fighting for the right to, to, to build it for the Polish. Um, they still like uh, Poland. But of course, there's been some warnings that this ongoing deterioration with the relationship with the EU is uh, detrimental for um, Poland's uh, growth uh, indicators. So, so definitely, they have to be watchful of that. So you, you've slightly preempted my second exit question, which is assuming that Polish exit of the EU isn't on the cards, it does, of course, nevertheless look like... Polish European politics is going to be a fairly volatile place, at least for the next few years. So if you were, or as you do, when you're advising businesses and investors on how to weather that, uh, that, that political turbulence from within Poland, what, what, what stands out for you as the kind of most important piece of advice? I would say that, um, of course, um, look at political develop developments. The, the most likely the, the next election, there will be no snap elections. It will be coming in uh, two years time, but definitely in the meantime, uh, do political due diligence and look at how this current government is operating because just mentioning uh, one idea or one, one element of it, they are uh, more nationalistic in uh, in a sense of building up their own industry. They can rely on quite a few uh, larger uh, companies, um, uh, home-owned uh, companies, and they, they would like to, um, even though they, they give support to foreign investors coming in, they are supportive of creating joint ventures, for example, in renewable energies. And, and this is a way how they would like to um, influence uh, business environment. Okay. And... Denzel, extra question for you. Five years from now, will we look back on these events as a turning point in the history of the modern EU or as just a particularly choppy wave in the generally stormy waters of European life? I am going to make a bold prediction and say that I am slightly leaning towards it being a turning point. Because uh, if you consider the counterfactual, if you consider what happens if Poland, this Polish government is allowed uh, not to, to carry on politicizing its fault and have political judgments. If the EU rest of you accept it, then uh, there's got to be a worry about a general decay of the EU's legal order and of member states to just pick and choose which EU laws they want to obey, which, which is bad news for the single market, which is the core of the EU, let alone 
the construction of new projects like uh, a permanent recovery fund. So I do think this really matters. And there's always a bit of muddle through you can construct. But in this, in this particular instance, there, is, you know, there has to be some crunch, and I'm afraid someone is going to have to shift. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say that there's, there's part of me that, that agrees with you on that. It does seem to me that while I absolutely agree with you that the general strategy has been to keep these questions of the relationship between European law and national law, the prerogatives of Brussels and the prerogatives of member states as theoretical as possible. And that political strategy has served European governments and the European Union relatively well for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, we may be reaching a point, or at the very least, even if it is, they succeed in keeping that question as theoretical as possible, what it should remind us is that under the, under, the, under the bonnet of the contemporary EU, there are some really big tensions with respect to the relationship between the centre and the member states, the rule of European law over national law, and of course, as you say, the question of whether the rule of European law is ultimately able to shape the rule of law in individual EU member states, um, not, not potentially just, just Poland, but obviously in this case, in Poland. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this, if you're invested in Poland or considering investing in Poland or Hungary or its neighbors, if uh, you're interested in the way you think, the, the way that some of these, um, these, these big political questions are potentially gonna play out in terms of political policy, regulatory stability, in those markets, then don't hesitate to get in touch. Denzel and Aniko and their colleagues are working on these issues every day. Uh, thanks to Denzel, thanks to Aniko, and of course, thanks to you for listening, and we will see you next time. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.